The Federal Reserve. Some people think that it was created by a conspiracy of nefarious bankers. Other people think those people are tinfoil hat wearing jerks. What's the deal with the Federal Reserve? It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. All right. This week's episode is The Conspiracy to Create the Federal Reserve. And there's no mind boggle of the week this week. The episode is the mind boggle. In fact, there's probably a good 100, 200, 500, whatever. <laughs> there's a lot of them in here. There's a whole heap. This, this is an episode of mind boggles. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought we'd start off with a little, little prequel here, a little appetizer of Andrew Jackson versus the central bank. Yes. There's a long history throughout our country of a, a fight against a, a centralized bank. Um, one of the great characters within our history is, is Andrew Jackson. I think he's probably the president that ha- has done the most as far as uh, working against like a centralized bank within this country. Obviously, it didn't take hold for forever, but he did a lot of good, I think. Yeah, so he was fighting the second central bank that our country had. Yes. And that, that bank was chartered in 1817 and liquidated in 1841. The structure of that bank was that the U.S. government held 20% of the bank's shares. The other 80% of the bank's shares was held by approximately 4,000 investors, a thousand of which were supposedly from Europe. But we're not too sure about that number because the list of the investors was not public. It was secret. So we have no idea who actually owned the Central Bank of America at that time. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Agent ETA. Oh, well, I was going to say, you know, another huge, huge thing that uh, Andrew Jackson actually did, and he is the only president to have done this, is he actually paid off the entirety of the national debt. So I was going to talk a little bit about the, the largest investors of this bank actually purchased their shares with loans from the bank that they were creating. Mm-hmm. So they basically got their ownership for free. Pull the old bait and switch technique. Yeah, so the U.S. government put up a ton of money. The quote-unquote private investors actually didn't put up that much money at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're using the old tactic, you know, always invest with somebody else's money, right? Yeah. So you think a central bank, that's a, that's a government thing, right? That's government-owned, government-controlled, or whatever. But this particular central bank that Andrew Jackson was combating was actually a private for-profit company, and it was not a government institution at all. Just to uh, kind of highlight that, the the bank's president said at one time, no officer of the government from the president downwards has the least right, the least authority to meddle in the concerns of the bank. So he pretty much just said it. Exactly what, what I was hinting at there was that it was not a government entity and they didn't want anything to do with the government, even though you might think that the central bank of the United States would be a government thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also displays some of their arrogance as well. And you'll, this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout some of these statements that you'll hear from some of these bankers. And when they uh, get any kind of pushback, there's been some issues yeah, throughout our history. I personally think now some, some of these uh, issues that I speak of, uh, what I'm referring to is like assassination attempts and stuff, stuff like that. I think there's been some of those uh, incidents that were closely tied to what uh, a president or um, a politician has said in, in 
um, direct reference to the, the bank. So in 1832, I guess, is when this particular story really begins. The bank passed a renewal to its 20-year charter. So every 20 years, it had to renew its government charter to continue operations. Mm-hmm. In 1832, now remember, it started in 1817. So in 1832, the charter was not up yet, but it tried to pass one earlier anyways, just to kind of get ahead of the game. Yeah. And from what I understand, the reason why they're um, trying to push this through early is because uh, Andrew Jackson was coming up for re-election. And they wanted to create controversy. They didn't think that Andrew Jackson would uh, veto this bill. They didn't think that uh, he would want that kind of controversy going into elections, into a campaign. So they figured they were going to call his bluff, basically, you know? Yeah, and it does take a lot of cojones to veto a bill, you know, especially backed by such powerful entities as this one. Mm -hmm. So it passed Congress in 1832, and it was vetoed by Jackson. So I guess he did have some cojones after all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This, like you were saying, this made the the bank was the central issue of the 1832 election. Yes. Now, here's here's an interesting little factoid. So if this is, you know, supposedly a neutral government institution, then why did the bankers fund Jackson's political opponents? Ask yourself that question. So the the central bank or the people behind the central bank were funding the campaigns of Jackson's political opponents. Now, I'm mm-hmm. saying that again. Because you have to wrap your head around that fact that these are not neutral parties. Oh, no. They are very much, very much involved in the political process, and they try to manipulate the process. Yes. But Jackson won the election by a wide margin. And I think it's important to note also, supposedly from what I read, um, Jackson actually went on the first like uh, kind of like in-person campaign tour that a president had ever done. Before that, the, the presidents had kind of like stayed, you know, home or, or stayed in, in uh, the Capitol and, and ran their campaign from there and had, um, you know, the word spread out through papers and stuff like that. But Jackson actually took the effort to go around the nation and talk to people personally, give personal speeches and get out to the voters himself. And that hadn't been done before. That made a big, big uh, um, impression on the public, you know. So in 1833, after he was elected, Jackson feared that the central banks would, uh, in a fit of revenge, would try and cause some sort of financial hardship for the people of America. So Mm -hmm. he removed all government deposits and he put them in regional and state banks instead. And and like you're saying, you know, he he kind of paid off all this debt and stuff. Mm -hmm. So guess what happened? The bank retaliated and they caused a recession, just as Mm -hmm. Jackson had feared. Well, I actually think that there's a kind of an interesting um, series of events that happened uh, leading up to that. So when when um, when Jackson first told his his first secretary of treasury, treasury Lewis McLean, to start removing mm-hmm. the government's deposits from the second bank, he refused. So so he fired him. So so he he appointed another fella, William J. Dwayne. Dwayne also refused. So Jackson fired him. <laughs> so he went on to a. Uh, uh, Another individual, the last individual that he appointed was Roger B. Taney, and Taney actually complied with his order and started uh, withdrawing government funds, I believe, on October 1st of 1833. Now, imagine the arrogance of telling your boss, let's say, I don't know, let's say you work at a restaurant and your boss says, okay, well, that table over there, take the dishes off so we can put new people at that table. And you just tell your boss, nah, nah, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, I'd rather (laughs) not. (laughs) It's, that's. That's kind of an unbelievable, it's really hard to wrap your head around some of this stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but old Hickory, you know, he, he had his foot down and he, he planned on keeping it down, you know, so he, 
he stuck to his guns and he, he, he fired the guys until he got the right guy in, I suppose. Well, that's what, I mean, that's what would happen if you were working at a normal job. You know, if you don't do your job, you get fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with that. So the bank, uh, without, I don't want to go into too much detail because this very easily could be a whole series of episodes on itself. Oh yeah. But to, to summarize, uh, this period of time during the early 1830s, the bank, engaged in a lot of shenanigans and tomfoolery like currency manipulation you know and mm-hmm. fraud and just a lot of a lot of really basically illegal stuff and it lost popular support yes it did well and also um the head of the bank nicholas biddle he was one of those very arrogant type of individuals that, that had made public uh, statements threatening to cause a depression for example if the bank yeah. was not rechartered but it was not rechartered because of all the shenanigans uh, it lost popular support and mm-hmm. it was not renewed. That was that would have been in 1836 that they would have had to renew it, mm-hmm. and it was liquidated by 19 by by 1841. I guess it took a few years to wind it down. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened to the economy after the bank was gone? Well, from what I understand, it flourished. Nothing. The economy was just fine. The economy <laughs> did what it does. It was great. Times were good. Well, kinda. yeah, it, was, it, was, uh, <laughs> it, it stabilized. I mean, I, I guess they, it wasn't perfect, but you know, it wasn't, it's not like there was some sort of economic collapse when the bank went away, yeah. the central bank. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't the, the big situation that they claimed it was, you know, they, they, they said the, the bankers said that, that the nation was going to collapse, you know, everybody's going to lose their jobs, you know, industry was going to collapse and everything, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, so when I was researching this, I, there's an interesting little, little factoid I found, you know, in the 1820s, apparently the bank caused a collapse in the price of goods by contracting credit, basically by calling back loans. Mm-hmm. And, and this caused... Refusing to give out more loans, right? Yeah. This caused a depression in the United States. Now, I said 1820s. You might be thinking of the 1929 depression, which this is not that. But at first, I, I was looking at my notes here, and I'm thinking, wait, did I say that wrong? 189? No, it's 1820s. And it's you know, almost a hundred years apart from the 1920s. Uh, just a mm-hmm. coincidence, I guess. Nothing more, just a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, these, these things have happened throughout our history. Jackson described the bank as a hydra of corruptions and dangerous to our liberties. So that ended America's second central bank until the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. So we had this glorious period of a, a 60, 70 years, give or take, without a central bank. And mm-hmm. that's where our story really begins. Well, really, it begins in 1910. Do you want to kick us off there? There was a very important meeting in 1910. This meeting was on a place called Jekyll Island. It was a resort there, and the resort was owned by J.P. Morgan. Um, a lot of people, uh, J.P. Morgan wasn't there at this meeting, but some very, very big financial leaders were there. And um, the first uh, and most prominent person probably was Nelson W. Aldridge. Obviously, Aldridge was an American politician, leader of the Republican Party in the United States Senate. Um, Aldridge had tried to pass through a bill that was very similar, almost exact to the the, uh, Federal Reserve Act, called the Aldridge uh, Bill, I believe. Was that what it was called? Aldridge Bill? I think it was the Aldridge Plan. Should we just, uh, before we go to the actual plot, should we just mention who was there and who they were connected to, I guess? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll start with, with Senator... He was a senator, so Nelson Aldrich, because, mm-hmm. oh, boy, howdy, is he my favorite. Uh, he's my hero of all time. No, not really. <laughs> Anyways, so he was a business associate of, 
guess who? J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. That name's going to come up a lot in this one. He was the father-in-law to J.D. Rockefeller Jr. Hmm, you don't say. That can't be a coincidence. He was a leader of the Republican Party, as you've already said. Mm-hmm. He was a senator from 1881 to 1911, and he was a chair of the Senate Finance Committee. And that they do like banks and monetary policy and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He was called the general manager of the nation because he had such heavy control over the monetary policy of the nation. I was reading a book about the Federal Reserve that was very much pro-Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because it said, oh yeah, that Jekyll Island conspiracy totally happened, but they they only did that because it was for the good of the nation. It was America. They wanted to make America great. Of course. That's why they did this. So I just want I just wanted to illustrate that the people involved here They're not nice people. These are not people who are interested in the good of anything other than themselves. And to illustrate that point, Senator Nelson, uh, Senator Aldrich, Nelson, Aldrich, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) King Leopold II of Belgium had a private company that took over the Congo area. They enslaved the population. They used mercenaries to take over everybody and force them to work in mines for harvesting rubber, for ivory and various things like that. Now, mm. if these people, if they basically were slaves, they weren't paid anything. Mm. If they missed quotas, then the mercenaries would cut off the hands of men, women, and children. This is one of the worst times in human history. This regime was known for murder, for atrocities, for torture, for systematic brutality. Historians estimate that between 1 and 15 million people died as a result of this. And wow. the consensus seems to be about 10 million people. So wrap your head around that. Oh, wow, man. A private company goes into the Congo, enslaves them, and kills maybe 10 million, maybe maybe only a million. Hey, let's be generous here. Maybe it was only 5 million. Anyways, <sighs> millions of people. I got to tell you, I, I was not aware that those numbers were so drastic. I had heard about this this event that you, or this situation you're talking about, but wow, that's, 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 incre- that's an incredible number right there. It was hell on earth, and it's surprising that we don't know more about it today. We know mm-hmm. about certain atrocities, but not others, and I don't understand why that is. But this one was really bad. And I bring this up because guess who? Senator Aldrich was an investor of this company. He was an investor and supporter of this company, mm-hmm. just to kind of demonstrate what kind of a person he was. And mm-hmm. that's that's just to kind of counteract this idea that, oh, they were just doing it for the good of the country. They cared about the prosperity of America. No, they didn't care about anything except for themselves, because yeah. if they did, there's no way they could support a company like this. Yeah. If, if you're supporting something like that, then morals aren't exactly high on your list of to do's, you know. So I won't go into that much detail on all the other guys, but I really wanted to talk about him in detail just just to kind of flesh out the, the the type of persons that we're dealing with here. So he's an th- important one. He kind of stands out above the, you know, most of them, you know? Yeah. He was probably the main ringleader of the whole event. So the, the yeah. next one I have on my list here is uh, Abraham P. Andrew. He was the assistant secretary of the treasury. Uh, he was friendly with the bankers. He was a Republican and he was an ally of Senator Aldrich. Mm-hmm. He, he was a bank director for 29 years before being appointed to the assistant secretary position. Now, my guess is that if they sent the high profile guys like the secretary of the treasury, people might pay attention to that. So they send their assistants. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but there's one one other uh, accolade that you forgot to mention about Mr. Andrew there. 
Oh, and what might that be? Well, he wasn't such a bad guy, right? He was actually the founder and director of the American Ambulance Field Service during World War I. Oh, yeah, I read about that's right. I did read about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, and speaking of how you mentioned earlier, how some texts like are, are pro Federal Reserve and, and pro like uh, describing these people as being, you know, patriots, what have you. Um, yeah. I just kind of find it funny because, you know, if that person were to be uh, revealed as being part of this nefarious uh, meeting, say, oh, well, Mr. Andrew, though, he's a good man. See what he's done, you know, right. kind of a yeah. plausible deniability of sorts, I suppose. Right. Yeah, and one good deed doesn't necessarily make all deeds good. That's, you know. very, that's very true. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I could go on a tirade there, but I, I was about to. But <laughs> So next up on the list is Frank Vanderlip. He was president of the National Citibank of New York, which is now Citibank, and at the mm-hmm. time was the single largest bank in the country. This bank had ties to Rockefeller, and this guy was the assistant secretary of the Treasury from 1897 to 1901. Oh, huh, mm-hmm. another assistant secretary. Interesting. Well, hot damn. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any more notes on uh, Mr. Vanderlip? Yeah, Vanderlip, I didn't have a whole lot on, to be quite honest. Uh, I didn't find uh, a whole lot of extras on him. It seemed to be kind of uh, dry. You got anything? Yeah. No, it's, it's some of these people, a couple of these people sort of have disappeared into the, you know, the fog of history. It's not that yeah, they- easy to find much on them. They have the main notes of like what they accomplished, like like Arthur Arthur Shelton, um, Aldrich's uh, private secretary. Uh-huh. He was a secretary of the um, National Monetary Commission from 1908 to 1910. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a whole lot else on that guy. I mean, it just I couldn't find a whole lot else on him. You know. Yeah. So next, I have Harry Davison, who is senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. And uh, that's, I mean, that's all I could really find on him is that, you know, but he's basically just worked for Morgan. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot else either. It doesn't seem like uh, he had a whole lot of notable things to that caught my eye, I guess. Right. So next up, I have Charles Norton. He was the president of the first National Bank of New York, which was one of the biggest banks. And that bank was owned by, guess who? Drum roll, please. Any Burr. guesses? That's right. You got it in one. J.P. Morgan. (laughs) That's pretty much, I mean, all I have on that guy is just that he was part of that bank. Next I have is uh, Benjamin Strong. And he was part of the J.P. Morgan Trust Company. And guess who became the first head of the, uh, guess who became the first head of the Federal Reserve? You got it. Benjamin Strong, who was at this. None other than. With a last name like that. So it, it's uh, maybe it's just a wild coincidence that one of the people at this meeting became the first head of the Fed. But yeah, who knows? I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. this is a show about conspiracies or anything. All right. So well, <laughs> never. So Paul, Paul War, Warburg. War Daddy Warbucks Warburg. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, so he obviously. Was, uh, oh, yeah. yeah go ahead. In- you tell us about him. Oh, we'll, we'll both tag team it. Tell you what. Yeah, yeah. So, so he was obviously an American investment banker. Uh, I believe. I believe he was born in Germany. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, he, was he wasn't an he, he wasn't an American banker. Uh, he was a partner of the Kuhn and Loeb company, and he was one of the wealthiest people in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. One. So one little. Just I just want to throw this in there. I don't want to really talk about it too much, but rumor has it that he was the representative of the Rothschilds. Ooh, <laughs> well, we have to yeah, do an episode on them sometime. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I almost feel like we need to mention them here. But once you get into that little spider web, 
it can lead you every which way, man. You'll have to. I mean, there's yeah. so many things you have to mention because of how much they've been invo supposedly involved in. I mean, yeah, it, it would just it would take too long. I tried to find out how involved they were or if they were involved with this at all. And that became a, a rabbit hole in and of itself real quick. And I just decided not to look into it because I just didn't have the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there, okay. So there's one, there's one direct piece of involvement that from what I, what I understand, um, uh -huh. the rock, the Rockefellers got one of their yeah. first very big loans from the bank of Cleveland to start their empire. Uh -huh. And um, the Bank of Cleveland, the Bank of Cleveland was known as being like one of the few banks uh, that was openly owned by the, uh, the Rothschilds in the United States. And so uh, the Rothschilds had been known already at that time. And keep in mind, the United States public at this period in time were pretty well informed, especially compared to nowadays, you know. Um, so a lot of people had known that name Rothschild and the Rothschilds were legendary for sponsoring both sides of the war, you know, in Europe and stuff like that for, for many years. And um, so they didn't, I, I don't think they wanted to put their name out here. They didn't want to put themselves, themselves on blast, you know. So some people have speculated that basically what they were doing was setting up the Western offshoot of their operations through the Rockefellers. That's, I did read a little bit about that, but I didn't really have time to research it. I definitely want to research it more at some point, though. Mm -hmm. what, Wara, Warburg was actually born in Germany to a family of bankers. He married Solomon Loeb's daughter, and that's how he became involved with the Kuhn and Loeb Company, which he mm -hmm. was a partner of uh, at this time in 1910. Kuhn and Loeb was a competitor of J.P. Morgan, which, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Actually, in, in, in 1910, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt. In 1910, no, I, actually okay. just, I just had this in my notes. I just blurted it out. In 1910, he was uh, elected uh, director of Wells and Fargo, or Wells Fargo and Company. Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, I actually have that. I have that in my notes. It's a little further down. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but so Kuhn and Loeb, you might not have heard of that. It might not sound too familiar to you, but there's a lot of family ties to the Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and some other names that you might recognize. In uh, 1977, Kuhn and Loeb merged with Lehman Brothers and they, they sort of, the name kind of dropped off, you know, the books or whatever. So if mm -hmm. you're thinking about Lehman Brothers, that's the same company as what we're talking about now. In 1914, Paul Warburg was appointed to the board of the Federal Reserve, which, hey, you know, so that's two people here directly involved with the Federal Reserve. That's uh, kind of kind of interesting. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he was probably the most important contributor to this whole deal. He was probably the, the brains or the evil genius behind the whole operation. Yeah, well, you know... I'm, there, it seems like there's a couple evil geniuses here behind, you know, yeah, well, that's true. of them. Yeah. But I, I think that they were all kind of following the same rule book, the same, you know, uh, right. plays, you know, uh, well, same playbook is what I originally intended to say. But at, at any rate, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot of these, you know, these same, um, ideals that they're working off of it, it it's just fractionalized reserve banking and, and a lot of the things that are closely really related to it. You know, like, yeah. like for instance, if um if if Andrew Jackson would have gotten rid of uh, fractional reserve banking and the Second Bank of America or Second mm -hmm. Bank of the United States, then then I would argue that we we may not even have the Federal Reserve right now. Yeah, that's that could be a possibility. Yeah, it would have taken way longer for them to regain their power. But I would argue that even in even in Andrew Jackson's day, 
these banks were already so powerful that I don't think that would be possible. And certainly today, they're they're never going away. I think they're we're stuck with them for good. I think. Well, I mean, how many countries around the world don't have centralized banks that control the government's issuance of money? Well, issues the government money at interest. Uh, that you know, would be I, um, zero. <laughs> no, actually, actually, there are a couple. One oh, really? North, okay. One of them is North Korea. <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> um, uh, there's there's a couple. There's a couple. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, before we went into Libya, they didn't have a, a centralized bank. Um, before we went into Iraq, they didn't have a centralized bank. And same thing with Afghanistan as well. Hmm. Um. I'd have to look back. I'm pretty sure that, that that's true, but I could be mistaken. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about JP Morgan because he's sort of the guy behind all of this. And I don't want to go into too much detail about him. I just wanted to say that in 1913, the stock market was worth about $26 billion, and JP Morgan controlled about $22 billion of that market cap. So he owned almost mm-hmm. everything at the, of the day. Yeah. Almost everything. And that's the so-called money trust. You'll probably hear us say the money trust. We're talking about JP Morgan and all the stuff he owns. That's what we're talking about. All right. So do you want to do you want to talk about the the actual event here, the conspiracy to create the Federal Reserve? Well, um, how so do you want to talk about how how the Federal Reserve Act was was in like uh, put into place, like the nefarious means in which uh, they used to kind of uh, sneak it by? Well, let's let's start with the the meeting on Jekyll Island. Okay, okay. So the uh, meeting on Jekyll Island, they, these guys, they had the, put together this whole like scheme of how to get there without being noticed because every single one of these guys were very publicly recognizable faces at that time. So if people would have noticed that all th- all of these people were converging onto um, one train cart, then somebody would have raised a red flag. Somebody would have wrote yes. about it in a paper or something like that. And the, the, the gig may not have necessarily been up, but it would have at least been exposed in some way, shape or form. So yeah. they took some, they took some precautions. Uh, they, they put up a, you know, it was a simple story. I believe the story was that they were all going on a, a duck hunting trip or something like that. Is yeah. That correct. Yeah. And I read that one person didn't even know how to use a gun. So they had to borrow a gun from somebody and they oh, brought yeah. it along with them. <laughs> Yeah, he still, you know, he was devoted to uh, the act that he was playing. Yeah, and so it was supposedly some real cloak and dagger stuff. So they used some of them, not all of them, some of them used aliases or first names. None of them used their last names on mm. the train car. They they went on Senator Aldrich's private train car and they all pretended mm. to not know each other so that any servants or whoever bring in them their lunch wouldn't realize who they were. They wore disguises. It, they they all ra- arrived at the train station at different times. I mean, it was all planned mm-hmm. out, all very secretive. And some of those some of the most powerful people in the world at that time, and they were meeting, hiding in disguises, meeting in <laughs> secret. And I just right away stop and ask myself, okay, well, if what they're doing is on the up and up, why do they need to hide it? If somebody is hiding something, whatever that is probably they're up to something that's not really in the best interests of, you know, the average person. There's no doubt about that. The meeting took place in November, 1910. So the conspirators all gathered on this Island and they, they shacked up in the main cabin, which was, it was more of a mansion, but we'll call it a cabin just, you know, cause it sounds quainter. And they banged out a plan for the uh, central bank of America. 
Now, all of the guys there, except for Daddy Warbucks, they all wanted more of a European style bank without a lot of government control. Mm-hmm. Uh, War by Warbucks, I mean Warburg. He he's the only one that wanted direct government involvement, and he wanted power restrictions on the bank. That way, they could assure people that the government had control of the bank. So he was really that's what when I say he was the brains behind that he knew that's what they needed to get it passed. And yeah. the idea was that they could change it over time. So they passed it eventually. We'll get to that in a little bit. He was right because they played the long game and the Federal Reserve Act has been amended over a hundred times. So they got what they wanted and mm-hmm. they didn't even have to wait that long to get it. What they came up with was the Aldrich plan and the bank they called the Reserve Association of the United States. And they were trying very hard to make it look like a diffusion of power. And the structure was very pretty much the exact thing that we have now, which regional member banks and, and stuff like that, to make it appear that the power isn't concentrated in one entity. Mm. But the end result is that it's, you know, concentrated power, basically. Mm. The eventual plan was called the Aldrich Plan against the witches of Warburg because he knew that Aldrich was associated with the bankers and big business and that that would limit the ability of the act to pass. Like nobody would think the Aldrich Plan was a good idea <laughs> for the yeah. average person, at least. Um, so that didn't pass. Uh, the So the plan they came up with on Jekyll Island did not pass, but that was the basis for the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. You might say, well, if this meeting was so secret, how do we know about it? Well, we know about it because the intent, the attendees talked about it later on in life. They kept silent about it for a long time, but we know through media interviews and diaries that these people later on in life talked about it and they admitted that this conspiracy happened. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Agent ETA, would you like to tell us a little bit about the passage of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913? Oh, why, certainly. So the way that they kind of pushed this act through was was very unhonest, and it was sly and slick and on the low low. You know what I mean? So they... they so wait, wait, they, hold on a second. Are you trying to tell me that bankers and politicians were dishonest? Well, maybe just a little bit at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> When the Federal Reserve Act was put through, first of all, let me start with this. It started with a congressional conference committee that was scheduled. Um, it was scheduled very early in the morning, 1.30 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. on Monday, December 22nd, 1913, when most people were sleeping and stuff. I mean, they, they this is another one of those nefarious tactics used by these people to kind of sneak things through, you know? Yeah. The, the Republican leader, um, Senator Barstow, or I'm sorry, Bristow of Kansas, um, he wasn't even made aware that the, the committee was was being held. Hmm. Um, and they had complained about it on Senate uh, the Senate floor afterwards. Also, President Woodrow Wilson signed the, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 into law uh, afterwards. Woodrow Wilson was not a career politician, the mm-hmm. guy was was the dean of a college before he started running for for any office, which was the presidency. Was when he first started running for office. Mm-hmm. He was married to a, a Rockefeller, mm-hmm. so I mean, I, I would have to say, gee, I wonder where the money for his campaign came from. You well, know? that's and, that's just a coincidence. I'm sure that has no bearing on the current topic at hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if there was benefit to it, right? But it seems that he he really kind of uh, found the error of his ways later on in life because he himself 
um, specifically said later on in life that he doomed the the country to financial failure. I think I may have mentioned that earlier, but at any rate, if I didn't, that's a very important quote, I think. You may have mentioned it and I may have edited it out. We'll see. <laughs> Whichever comes first. You know? Yeah, you know. <laughs> But I, just 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 the circumstances in which this bill was passed, I think, is is a perfect example of, of you know, just a sly sleight of hand that these people always kind of play. The, the bankers, the money changers, whatever you want to call them. I mean, th- this is the type of tactics tactics that they use. They're not honest people. They're not yeah. there for any moralistic reason. They're there for pure profit. They're there to to soak up control, soak up money soak up everything that they can you know it's um, well yeah and if you look just look at who got to contribute to the what the fed looked like who got to make that decision it was all the cronies of jp morgan and mm -hmm. rockefeller to a lesser degree there was no public representation there was no anybody except for this very small group of very rich people controlled the entire thing Mm -hmm. creating this very powerful entity I think a very important little side note also is is by this point in time, most of the media, as far as you know, obviously it's not media that we would think of nowadays. There's no there's no uh, audio or video. You know, back then <clears throat> it was all newspapers. But most of the newspapers in the in, in the country at that point were already owned by a lot of these bankers, either yeah. as subsidiaries or as direct, you know, entities. Yeah. So I, I wonder why they would do that, right? I mean. Would it possibly be because they wanted to control the flow of information? Well, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they just they like their pet projects. You know, kind of like how Jeff Bezos buys newspapers that are losing money just just because he likes newspapers. That's it, right? <laughs> Some of the same tactics, right? Yep. What I, I read when they were creating this thing that they're trying to pass the Federal Reserve. Some of the people, like the bankers and Senator Aldrich, actually came out publicly against it. While they were yes. privately pushing for it, they were privately lobbying for it and stuff like that. Yeah, well, because Aldridge, like we had already stated, a lot of people already had him tied to the bankers and, and usurers, money yeah. changers, whatever you want to call them. So, yeah, if, if he would have came out with another bill that he was supporting, then obviously people would have immediately been against it. Right. Um, one little quick side note. Agent Anderson is throughout this entire time that we've been recording and uh, discussing this event. As a matter of fact, yes, I've been noticing some odd audio glitches. Have you been oh, noticing yeah. that? Definitely, it's been consistent. Yeah. yeah, there's been a couple of times where I've heard some like audio glitches. Where I mean, I totally thought you were you're beginning to talk, and I had to kind of stop myself. I, I I noticed you earlier did the same thing. Yeah. Do you do you remember the last time we had a conversation? Uh, I was telling you about a song. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just did it again, right? Where you said last time we were having a conversation. <laughs> I was telling you about a, a song by Oingo Boingo called Little Girls. And I actually read the lyrics to you because they're so incredibly creepy. And after I read those lyrics, our call got so glitchy. Like I'm convinced that there there's a system in place that looks for keywords and then starts recording your conversation when you hit certain keywords. I'm 100% well, convinced of this. Well, I'll take it a step further. I think that your conversations, no matter on what digital platform or any kind of audio recording, they're always being recorded. Whether uh-huh. it's being tagged or not, I think maybe the difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So next, do you want to, let's talk a little bit about what exactly is the Federal Reserve System. I, I think I kind of want to mention this because 
First of all, let's see. Is it so? Is it federal? This, we're talking about the central bank here. Federal. This is the whole thing we've been talking about the whole time. The Federal Reserve System. Mm-hmm. Is it actually federal? No, it is not. Does it have reserves? Uh, no, it does not. <laughs> and the the third word in that phrase, or the name of the thing, system. Is it a system s- suggesting that it's a diffusion of power? Is it a system? Well, I mean, it's a system. Is it set up for the benefit of the people of the United States? Not in any way, shape, or form, No, as far so, as my opinion is concerned. Well, the, so the way I look at that is system suggests that it's like a, a system with diffused power, but it's actually not. The way – I don't want to get into the details of how it's structured, it, it, maybe not in this episode, but basically it has the appearance of diffusion of power, but in reality, the power is completely concentrated at the very top of the structure. Basically, the the chair, the Federal Reserve Board, the head honchos, they can veto anything that the lesser members do at all. They can just they have complete control of everything, basically. They named it the Federal Reserve System so that it would be popular with the people. So it would fool the people into thinking that it was a government entity and that it would mm-hmm. provide stability to the financial system. They don't control the business cycle. They create the business cycle. One of the, uh, you're glitching out again, dude. <laughs> uh, when you said effect earlier, it, it like, uh, it like made a, a glitch. Like it was trying to understand, like, is he saying effect or affect? So if the fed was supposed to stabilize the economy, right. And so I looked up, okay, did that happen? What were the economic? So if you look let me, at, let me, yeah, go ahead. I would actually like to talk about something first. Um, okay. So the federal reserve system has 12 districts, each served by an independently chartered uh, regional reserve bank. And I think it's very important to state also is the Board of Governors, when it um, refers to the the Federal Reserve, is made up of seven members who are appointed to 14-year terms by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. So the President can can recommend this person. It's confirmed by the Senate. And then they spend a 14-year term. That's a pretty damn long term. 14 I mean, years? Lot, 14 years. There's, there's yeah. a lot that can freaking happen in 14 years, man. Right. Is there any other... I mean, I'm not aware of any other appointment, any other seat that, that's 14 years. Are you? Uh, judges are lifetime appointments. The I mean, well, I guess that's... Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I guess that slipped my mind. That's that's a whole other thing that I'll rant on. But that's a different thing entirely, though. Yeah, yeah. That was one of those obvious as... Uh, dang. Well, yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, just like the central bank that Andrew Jackson was fighting, our current Federal Reserve System, it's it's a privately held company that's for profit. Yes. Well, all right. So so I, I think I think one of the uh one of the key um historical figures who actually put it very well was actually President Garfield, uh-huh. who was assassinated after he had made this statement. But I digress. Hmm. Anyways, he stated, and I quote, he says, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. I think that's, that's straight to the point and no wonder the guy got assassinated. <laughs> you know I don't know. He sounds a little paranoid to me. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> no, I'm just man, being... man, he cray, huh? One of the things they're trying to sell the Fed as a cure to economic instability. So, you know, for example, the the 1907 crash, uh, economic hard times, 
whatever you want to call it, which I mean, that deserves an episode on its own. But that was one Mm -hmm. of the things that convinced people that maybe we should really do this Federal Reserve thing. So let's take Mm -hmm. a look at their track record since 1913. So have they been successful (laughs) at saving the economy from troubles? Well, let's see. There were uh, (laughs) economic economic crashes in um, 1921, 1929. 1962, 1959, 1958, that's a whole heap of information right there. And I was having a hard time uh, keeping grasp on it, but yeah. <laughs> well, that, it's, that's, it's public information too. The great thing is anybody can look this stuff up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this whole thing ties into the fractional reserve banking, right? Yeah. And the fractional reserve banking is a practice that I think if, if you're going to get rid of a central bank, you, you have to get rid of this as well. If you want to put the last nail in the coffin or at least stem the tide for quite some time, because let's, let's not forget, you know, um, Andrew Jackson did not do this, even though he did kill the bank. Mm-hmm. It, it, it took them 77 years to regain their power. Yeah. If you got rid of the bank and got rid of federal reserve banking, I'm sorry, fractional reserve banking, then man, I'm not sure how long that, that tide would be stemmed but it would be quite longer than 77 years, I think, I hope. So what exactly is fractional reserve banking? It sounds complicated. It's not really compl- complicated at all, to be quite honest. It's, it's, it's pretty simple on its face, at least. So fractional reserve banking refers to basically the type of banking. It's a standard banking um, practice of nowadays, at the very least, and it's been for quite some time, of issuing more money than the bank holds and reserves. So basically say for instance if a bank if a bank has I don't know $100 in reserve it can loan out 10 times as much as it has on reserves. So basically however many reserves that the bank has well, let's just put it as as simple as we basically can. Say you have $1 in reserve. Well, if you have $1 in reserve as a bank, you can actually loan out $10 as loans. How is that possible? That money doesn't actually exist. Well, it doesn't exist. You're creating it out of nothing. Basically, what you're telling me is they create money out of nothing. So an example of that might be if I go to buy a house that costs $100,000, I have to put 20% down. I have to put real money down of $20,000 and they're loaning me $80,000 of money that doesn't actually exist, but they get to collect interest on this fake money. Is that sort of how the whole system works? Oh, absolutely. The government should have the right to print its own money. Why in the holy hell would you need a private entity full of private stockholders for private profit? Why would you need them to get to issue you money? You're a government. 
Yeah. How, how is it? How you know what I mean? It doesn't make how any is it that sense they're at all. More powerful than you. Right. No, it doesn't. I looked a little bit into inflation. If you took a dollar in 1913, or something that cost one dollar in 1913, today mm-hmm. would cost about twenty six dollars. That's an inflation rate of twenty five hundred percent. And another way to look at this numbers is that a dollar in 1913 has decreased in value and today is worth about three cents. So in other words, Mm. the value of the dollar since the creation of the Federal Reserve has been completely wiped out. It's almost worthless. So let me say that again, in case it didn't quite sink in. A dollar in 1913 has lost 97% of its value from then to today. It's just incredible. Yeah. Well, when when I researched this, I, I can only come to one conclusion is that they won. They won. That's it. I think the game was over a long time ago, and now we're just living in their world. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for the, the moment, you know. The world they wanted when they planned all this stuff out, that's the world we're living in today. And the crazy thing to me is that it's been it's been going on so long, it's like part of our culture now. Like people can't imagine mm-hmm an economy or a country without a central bank. That's just the way it is. And it reminds me of a short story. Uh, It reminds me of a short story by Shirley Jackson called the lottery about this village. And every year they choose somebody and they execute that person. Mm -hmm. It's a famous Mm -hmm. story. You can look it up and it's probably read it online. Yeah. But they just do it because it's tradition. And that's kind of where we're at with the central banks it's just, we don't even know why anymore. That's just how it is. We don't even understand how, how it works. We don't know why we do it. That's just what we do. And that's just mm. reminded me of that story. But you know what, though? I, I am kind of inspired, though, because as of recent, it seems like there are a lot more people that are willing to be informed or are, are trying to be informed. Yeah. I mean, we have so many damn distractions nowadays, even just, just in like a culture, entertainment Damn, there's so many things to pay attention to and to be to be distracted uh, by, but I do believe that there is a hunger for truth. There is a hunger to to know exactly why we have arrived at the spot we are in right now. You know, there's more people that are willing to gain a perspective where this kind of um, information relates to them directly. I mean, I, but what I mean by saying that is they're they're more open to accept this information. In years past, you know, like in the '90s, for example, I remember, you know, you know, being younger in the '90s, and and every once in a while touching on subjects like this, and the response generally was, "Well, where's your tinfoil hat?" You know, even like in the the 2000s and such, and I'm sure even still now to this day, there's still a lot of uh, sentiment, a lot of reaction like that, you know. But there's a hell of a lot more people that are, are are genuinely interested. In, in this type of history, you know, and I think that there's a lot more people that are open, open to this. And I think that's due directly to the um, axis of information that we have, you know, that could there's be. a lot of mis- there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there too, though. So obviously you got to vet your sources. You really got to pay attention to where this information is coming from because th- there's all, all kinds of just complete lies out there too, you know, anything else to add before we wrap it up? Agent ETA. No, well, there's too many other things to add to it. But we gotta stop it somewhere. You know, yeah. It's, All right. Well, let's let's call it. So, thanks for listening. Tune in next time for a topic that we haven't chosen yet. <laughs>